You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to NeuroFrontiers, produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. Your host is Dr. Anthony Alessi, Chief of Neurology at William W. Backus Hospital. There are only two ways of dying in sports, cardiac and neurologic. We're going to explore the neurological causes of sudden death in sports today on NeuroFrontiers. Joining us to discuss the role of neurologists in sports-related injuries is Dr. Jeffrey Kutcher, board-certified neurologist and associate professor of neurology at the University of Michigan. Dr. Kutcher is director of the Michigan Neurosport, a multidisciplinary center dedicated to the evaluation and management of neurologic sports injuries. Dr. Kutcher, welcome to ReachMD. Thanks a lot, Tony. It's good to be here. Jeff, as a leader in the field of sports neurology, what do you see as the role of the neurologist in sports medicine and as a member of the sports medicine team? Well, I think simply put, uh, the most important thing is is that we help provide better neurological care for athletes. And that could be in our clinics, in the training rooms, on the field, and a whole bunch of different ways. Well, at the lead-in, we talked about sudden death in neurology and sudden death in sports due to neurologic causes. How come it's taken so long for neurologists to really get involved in sports? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Tony. I think there has been a sort of historical momentum that neurologists have not been involved in sports whether that is just sort of the nature of, of our business and, and what neurology has been historically versus sort of the fast-paced side of, of sports medicine. But that's certainly changing. I've seen that just in my short career in the past 10 years or so. But certainly if you go back and, and look over time, neurology as a field is changing, and this is just one way in which we're starting to do things a little bit differently. Well, apropos to that, you're currently advocating for a special section of the American Academy of Neurology dedicated to sports neurology. What's been the response thus far? Oh, it's been fantastic. It really has, both from the, the field of neurology itself, but also, and I think most importantly, from the sports medicine community. It's been about three years ago now that I stood up and said, hey, I'm a neurologist that cares about sports medicine. I, I know that it's a unique field and a unique practice environment, and the response that I've gotten from those sports medicine doctors in my community all the way up to the national and international levels has been fantastic. They've been waiting for neurologists to get involved, and they're extremely happy that we're starting to. Why has it been such a dramatic response all of a sudden from neurologists? Why have they been sitting back and waiting? What's gone on? What's changed in neurology? Well, I think one of the things that's changed is people going into neurology, to be honest. To be quite frank, it's a field now that has a lot more variety to it. People from different backgrounds are going in into the field but also some of the important questions in sports medicine that are neurological are becoming more and more noteworthy. Concussion is, is the obvious one that has been in the media a lot over the past few years and is getting more so all the time. And I think you know, anybody who, who is interested in doing medicine likes to do things that people around them are interested in. I think that's what neurologists are starting to find out. Well, you've mentioned the word concussion. Let's talk a little bit. One of the most common and serious injuries health professionals have to deal with as a result of sports-related injury is concussion. Just how common is it? Uh, it's extremely common. I think the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention just put out a statement about a year ago or so estimating about 3 million concussions in the United States alone per year in organized athletics. So if you think about that and add into that the unorganized athletics that also cause sports concussion, it's extremely common. What particular sports do you think have the greatest propensity to concussion? Well, you know, there are the obvious ones, the contact sports, the sports that as part of their game play and point of the game is to 
be physical. So obviously the combat sports uh, have concussion as an extremely common occurrence, football, ice hockey, and so forth. But something that I try to get out in the community and talk about as much as I can is the how common concussion is in sports that may not be contact sports, but contact happens a lot. Soccer is, is a great example of it, field hockey, because these are sports where the athletes are not wearing protective headgear. They may not be expecting contact as much. And so the frequency of high impacts that can cause concussion, it's quite common. Well, while we're on the subject of concussion, let's stick with that a little bit. Now, the currently used grading scales for concussion and the diagnostic criteria are undergoing a lot of revision by many organizations after the recent conference in Zurich that you were a part of. What can you tell our listeners about the new guidelines which are forthcoming regarding sports concussion? Well, I think the first thing to point out is that there's never been one universally accepted uh, guideline for concussion, grading or management or diagnosis. There have been a series of, of different organizations that have tried to classify concussion. The American Academy of Neurology, of course, came out with practice guidelines back in the early part of the 1990s. And that is where a lot of the sports medicine field began using grade one, grade two, and grade three concussion based on presenting symptoms and then developing management around that grading. But as Sports medicine physicians and sports neurologists like myself have looked at it more and more. Really, that grading system doesn't hold up to be all that clinically relevant because, quite frankly, there's nothing about how a concussion presents within the first hour, within the first two hours, or even two days that lets us know it's going to last seven days, it's going to last 14 days. So we're moving away from a rigid classification system into one uh, a situation where we're taking uh, clinical management much more on a case-by-case, case, even day-by-day -day basis, and managing these patients clinically, really so they can get back to play safely, but also quickly, and that we're also not returning people back to play too quickly, which is, of course, a safety issue. I guess when we think of concussion, we think of the acute event, but obviously there's a chronic stage of concussion that we have to be more mindful of with repeated concussion. What has the Zurich Conference had to say about that in terms of diagnosis and further treatment of chronic head injury? Well, first of all, I say the, uh, the conference in Zurich was, was a fantastic collaboration between physicians all around the world. It was a great opportunity to get together and, and talk to people from different countries and different cultures and different sporting environments. And regarding the particular question of long-term effects of concussion, multiple concussions. There was a lot of really good debate, good discussion. There are a couple of key things that came out, out of that meeting. The first is that anytime somebody's been concussed, you do want to make sure that they're completely asymptomatic before they return to play because that next concussion, if they're still symptomatic from the first one, time and time again, we see that those are the ones that lead to some of the long-term sequelae. They lead to the three to four, six months, even two or three year post-concussive syndrome. They may have a more even longer-term consequence, you know, moving down the road. When we're talking about early cognitive changes, there's been a lot of, of press about some of the repetitive concussion sports, football players going on to have early-onset Alzheimer's-type pathology. And essentially, at this point, we do not know how many concussions it takes to lead to those things. But I think what we do know is that everybody is a little different. Every patient, every athlete has a different set point for concussion and probably has a different risk for developing long-term sequelae. So the hallmark is still, let's keep them as safe as we can. Do not return anybody to play who has, is still suffering from a concussion. Let's also monitor them long-term from season to season. 
with as much objective data as we can so that we get a sense as to whether there's any, any change in the baseline, cognition, personality, those kind of things, which would be another reason for us to suggest that they do not continue to play contact sports. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and joining us to discuss sports-related head injuries is Dr. Jeffrey Kutcher, Director of Michigan Neurosport and Associate Professor of Neurology at the University of Michigan. Dr. Kutcher, getting back to your discussion about that, let's talk about management of concussion. How does a physician best manage concussion, and how do you determine when it is safe for an athlete to return to a contact sports? One of the ways I think about it, and I teach my residents, the athletic trainers I work with, is a lot of times diagnosing concussion is not the hard part. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not obvious, but you know, in a lot of cases, you see the hit, you see the effects, there's your concussion standing there in front of you, and you got that part. Really, the hard part is diagnosing, if you will, a normal brain afterwards, because a brain is not like a knee joint. It's not like even like the heart, the range of normal function, if you will, is much wider. So really the best approach is if you can know athletes pre-hit, if you can get a sense as to how they are personality-wise, how they are cognitively, do they have a normal neurological screening beforehand, then you can measure change from baseline afterwards. And that's really the key. After the hit, you want to make sure that these folks have returned to their normal function. That, I think, is the best way to manage a concussion. Once you've made that diagnosis that, hey, this person is at their baseline function, you want to make sure that you then challenge them with some kind of physical challenge, get their heart rate up, you get them basically demanding more oxygen and glucose in the brain and see if you can elicit symptoms. We only return people to play once they have graduated from uh, sort of a, a ladder approach to physical activity where the last step is sort of simulated play or, or, or practice without contact, if you will. And only when they do that asymptomatically are they safe to return to the playing field. Jeff, at the outset of the show, we talked a little bit about catastrophic neurologic injury. And specifically, I guess we're referring to the second impact syndrome. What's the best way to avoid this? And can you describe second impact syndrome for our listeners? Sure. Second impact syndrome refers to a devastating injury that occurs when there is a second concussion, sort of like I mentioned before, if you have a second concussion in the setting of an already ongoing first concussion, yeah, you can get a lot worse symptoms, but you can also get a second impact syndrome, which the exact pathophysiology, while unknown, certainly involves diffuse cerebral edema. This leads to basically, you know, catastrophic intracranial pressures that oftentimes lead to death. There's a relatively rare occurrence. There have been a few dozen or so reported cases. Typically, almost all, if not all, have been in the age group of 18 years or, or younger. We don't know why that is exactly, but it's certainly something that athletic trainers, coaches, family members, teammates should be aware of, and is definitely a reason why we want our athletes to go back to play only when their first concussion has been resolved. We're increasingly reminded of the importance of neuropsychometric testing as a part of the evaluation of sports concussion and the ability to return to play. Uh, what's your opinion on the role of neuropsychometric testing? Well, I think it's extremely important. What it represents really is it was the first and probably still one of the best pieces of objective data that a clinician can use when managing a patient with concussion. There are several problems with, with using neuropsychological testing in athletes, the biggest one being you need really to consider that data only as part 
of the overall picture. You know, the neuropsychological data is collected, and, and, and I'm not a neuropsychologist, so I'm not going to pretend that I know exactly the ins and outs of this stuff, but uh, certainly having a neuropsychologist interpret data that you've obtained, having them meet the patient, having them understand the reasons uh, for the tests, that can be very useful. What can be a little, I don't want to say dangerous, but there's at least opportunity for misuse is when we're using neuropsychological data to be really the only tool that is used to make the return-to-play decision. If we are using this data that's collected inappropriately in environments where the, the athletes and the patients are not concentrating, they're not motivated, they're distracted by other stuff, I mean, neuropsychological data has to be as clean as possible if we're going to use it as part of our management strategy. Jeff, Michigan Neurosport is a fairly unique multidisciplinary approach to treating neurologic sports injuries. What goes into Michigan Neurosport? What makes it up? Well, it started really as a clinical entity here at the University of Michigan. Myself, as well as some other neurologists here, were seeing some of our own university athletes with concussion, with, with epilepsy, with nerve injuries. And as we interacted with the athletic training staff, as we interacted with the sports medicine physicians, you know, we realized that, that there's a lot of neurology in the athletic training room. I mean, it's, it's, it's a tremendous environment, and there are so few neurologists interested in it that there's a real opportunity here, I think, for us to make a big, big difference because treating athletes with neurological disease or neurological injury, there is a difference. There is the outcomes that you're looking for are different than in the average population. So there is definitely a sense that I mean, for me, when I started getting into this, that, hey, here's something that we could, we could be doing a lot better. You know, we could really improve the quality of neurological care in athletes, and so that's what we started doing. We got organized both clinically, again, in the community with our two universities here in the Ann Arbor area, University of Michigan and Eastern Michigan University. We also work with the USA Hockey Program. The developmental team is here in town. And with that as our clinical base, we started doing research on concussion, uh, migraine headache, as well as some other sports neurology-related things. But really what I've enjoyed the most, I think, over the past three years is developing sort of our community outreach educational efforts. We go out and we talk to local high schools, the, the parents and the coaches. We talk to youth sport directors and coaches in and around the area, too. And I tell you, as we've done this more and more, the interest level on a national level is just incredible. We're being invited for uh, symposium presentations at national sports medicine meetings as neurologists, and I think this is really a great opportunity for the field of neurology to make a big difference. Well, Jeff, by all accounts, you're doing a great job at Michigan Neurosport. Best of luck with the Michigan Neurosport concept and its approach to sports neurology. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Jeffrey Kutcher, Director of Michigan Neurosport and Associate Professor of Neurology at the University of Michigan. Dr. Kutcher, thank you again for being our guest today on NeuroFrontiers. You've been listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. NeuroFrontiers is produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts.